Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Tatiana Linkhoeva, who's Assistant Professor of Japanese History in the Department of History at New York University. And she'll be talking about her new book, Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan and Soviet Communism, which was published in 2020 this year by Cornell University Press. As even the period we call the post-Cold War seems to be receding further into the past, it can be easy to forget that almost exactly a century ago, the thing whose global spread had some people worried was not a virus, but an idea. In the years following 1917's October Revolution in Russia, socialism had taken hold in one place, and even if world revolution ultimately failed to materialise, for a time it looked to be gaining considerable ground. Also not unlike a viral pandemic, the spread of socialism elicited Rorschach-like test responses in almost every corner of the world, exposing and exacerbating insecurities and political divisions, offering powerful emancipatory promises to some, and motivating panicked overreactions from some worried elites. As Tatiana Linkhoeva shows in her richly detailed Revolution Goes East, Japanese responses to Soviet socialism during the 1920s and 30s took all these myriad forms and more, exploring how various factions within the government, the military, and society at large balanced their views of the October Revolution as an ideological and a geopolitical cataclysm, Linkhoeva deftly weaves in and out of historical events occurring in Japan itself, the North Asian theatres of the Russian Civil War, and Japan's widening East Asian imperial domain. Just as importantly, and I should say fascinatingly, the author also teases out the many tangled strands of leftist thought percolating through Japanese political and intellectual circles at this time, dissecting the complex ways in which anarchists, socialists, and Japan's incidentally still existing Communist Party understood the red tide which was sweeping across Eurasia. But a century on from all of that, the author is here to say more about it, so I'll say... Tatiana Linkhoeva, welcome to the podcast. Um, hello, uh, thank you for having me and thank you for that introduction. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, before we talk about the book itself and uh, and the amazing richness of events it describes, um, I'll ask you perhaps the, about how you came to be interested in Japan and its response to, to Red October, as it's sometimes called, and, and your general academic background. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm from Russia, and I am a Buryat. Uh, it's a, a Mongol-speaking community in the south of eastern Siberia, uh, uh, near Lake Baikal. And uh, so I went to study at the Moscow State University, and I I uh, went to the uh, Faculty of Philosophy, and I was studying. Uh, I decided to study Japanese philosophy because um, 
you know, everyone else was studying Western philosophy and, um, you know, Western European culture. And that seemed to me not very exciting. And um, that was late 1990s in Russia. And um, there was this uh, boom on things um, Japanese. You know, Haruki Murakami was just translated into Russian. And um, Japan was something very exotic, very far away very unfamiliar but at the same time for me being uh, you know coming from asia from this very buddhist background it was sort of familiar and unfamiliar <clears throat> so i decided uh, that i want to study that and um incidentally um uh, we had um, you know the siberian intervention the japanese intervention to the russian revolution which i will discuss later um in buryatia uh you know the japanese intervention troops stationed actually in 1919, 1920. And after the Second World War in 1945-46, we also had Japanese prisoners of war um, uh, in Buryatia. Um, so there, there was this connection and I, you know, I heard stories about these Japanese prisoners and Japanese intervention. So there was this interest as well. Um, so uh, then I went to study the Tokyo uh, Tokyo University as a, as an exchange student on the Japanese uh, scholarship, and um, for my master degree, I um, I wrote about uh, Japanese uh, modern philosophy uh, during the interwar period, and I compared Japanese uh, philosophy with the Russian existentialist philosophy. Um, so I look at the, um, you know, Dostoevsky, Berdyaev, and uh, Leon Shestov. So I discovered that um, those um, um, Russian philosophers and Russian writers were extremely popular in uh, modern Japan. Uh, you know, they were translated, they were read. Uh, Miki Kiyoshi, one of the most famous Japanese philosophers, actually described the 1930s as the Shestovian angst. And, um, and uh, the Japanese, modern Japanese were really attracted to this uh, Russian critique of the West and, uh, you know, Western capitalist modernity. So this is something that I did in um, uh, for my master. And so then for my PhD uh, studies, I came to University of California at Berkeley. And over there, I took classes on, on Russian and Japanese history, a lot of social thought and Marxism. And um, um, so to kind of realize that in English uh, uh, language scholarship, you know, this relationship between Russia, um, Imperial Russia and Japan or Soviet Russia and Japan is not um, explored very well, um, despite the apparent uh, influence of Russian social thought, you know, Russian literature on Japanese, uh, on the Japanese culture and Japanese also political thought. Um, and uh, so I, uh, I took, I decided to work on uh, Japanese Marxism, Japanese left. And um, so I felt that Japanese Marxists and Japanese social thinkers were uh, sort of in this constant conversation or dialogue uh, with Russian social uh, thought and thinkers. And, um, and historians, uh, you know, sort of overlook that. And that's what I try to do in my, in my, uh, in my work. Hmm. Hmm. And so the book Revolution Goes East that we're talking about then grew out of your PhD dissertation? 
yes, yes, this is my reworked uh, PGD dissertation. I see. And, and how much kind of reworking occurred? Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm always interested in these kind of process so, questions. Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a great question. And it's, it's, I think it's good to know, you know, the process of writing and uh, rethinking. Um, so the PhD dissertation, which I uh, completed in 2014, is basically part two of the book, which is about the Japanese left. It's a pure sort of intellectual uh, and bit of institutional history. Um, and it's about internal debates um, of uh, Japanese socialists in relation to the Russian Revolution and, you know, um, who are the Bolsheviks, what is the Soviet state, and so on. However, after I completed and after, um, you know, some people uh, commented, uh, other scholars commented on this um, on this um, dissertation, I realized that... Um, you know, I can expand actually the uh, my argument and look at the at the um, uh, policymakers, at the um, uh, at the government, at the political elites, um, and uh, the relationship between uh, Russia and the Russian government, Soviet government, and the Japanese government, um, because people were interested in this, no- especially interested in this notion of um, anti-communism. Um, and um, not only how it was understood by the socialists um, or the left, but also, uh, or, you know, just intellectuals, but also how it was understood by the uh, political elites. And this is one of the one of the kind of main arguments of the book: how we can what to unpack this the category of anti-communism uh, in modern Japan. Absolutely, yeah, and it, it kind of comes together, I think, really well. It's interesting knowing that that uh, latter part has this origin in in the dissertation, and that the the, the, the former part um, is something that was composed later. It actually reads without sen- without any sense of that being a seam between them. So I, I think it's fantastic that you've kind of woven everything so deftly together. Um, but uh, having kind of got an idea then of where it all came from, I think we should uh, jump into talking about the book itself. Um, and the introduction is a really interesting bit of background, I think, on uh, uh, just kind of hints at some key concerns which run throughout the book, uh, more to do with what you just outlined, I think, actually, uh, to do with uh, sort of historic perceptions within Japan of what Russia represents. Um, and you begin with uh, this idea that the Russian Revolution itself kind of posed a, a double question for a lot of people observing it throughout the world, both over the merits of a socialist system and this new set of political ideals, but also around the kind of uh, idea of uh, national liberation and, uh, as you say, kind of uh, an alternative narrative to that of uh, Western imperialist capitalism. Um but you also note that there's yeah the kind of parallel dualism in Japan's response, uh, and and as I mentioned briefly in the introduction there, there's kind of a, a geopolitical dimension and um, a an ideological response. So could you kind of sketch out how this double Japanese response uh, sort of played out? Who were the people who had these different uh, geopolitical versus ideological views of what was going on? Um, yeah. So the introduction is titled Two Russias." Um, and uh, so my sort of basic framework that uh, the image of Russia, uh, there were two images uh, of Russia that 
um, actually has uh, that had roots in um, you know in the 17th century even. So my take in the, in the end uh, on the um, on this issue of the responses to the Russian Revolution, I took it as a long durée. So I went you know like centuries back because I think pre-existing um, assumptions, pre-existing stereotypes, and thinking about um, Russia and its place in the region that really informed uh, opinions of the elite and intellectuals and common people about this, you know, international communism and Soviet communism. Um, so in, in the introduction, I kind of I, I laid out this pre, uh, those pre-existing um, assumptions about Russia, and also I discussed this in Chapter 1. So two Russias... Um, First Russia, <laughs> Russia number one, is um, is this neighbor in the north. Um, uh, that uh, so the Russia was moving to the Pacific uh, Ocean since the 17th century. You know this uh, kind of uh, colonizing Siberia and then moving to the uh, uh, north. Uh, and at the same time, the Tokugawa Japan is also, you know, moving north, exploring uh, Hokkaido, you know, dealing with the Aino population. So eventually in the um, well, late, late 18th century, early 19th century, these two, um, these two countries uh, met. Um, and um, for Tokugawa Japan and later for the Meiji government, Russia represented this sort of an, um, a threat um, and an enemy that is actively trying to sort of colonize those lands that Tokugawa actually also claimed, uh, put claim on. Um, so Russia had been always this uh, powerful, if not the most powerful um, enemy or threat in the region. Um, so the triple intervention of 1898, uh, the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, so the examples, um, so the most visible examples, or known examples of this tension between Imperial Japan and Imperial um, Russia. So this kind of uh, understanding of Russia as this neighbor, uh, the threat from the north, uh, persisted even after the after 1917. Um, the sort of the famous uh, battle of Nomonhan um, uh, in 1938, um, which is called in Russians the Battle of Halhingol. Um, this one is, you know, usually in, in the literature you read it as the, uh, you know, the this conflict between communist and anti-communist forces, and I kind of shift this focus. It was not just, you know, battle between two ideologies. It was, uh, it was, you know, following the same logic as it was during the Russo-Japanese War. Is the is the sort of inter-imperial conflict, and um, Russia number two is. Um, what I mentioned in my introduction, um, this uh, as Japan rapidly uh, modernized and grappled with these various uh, problems of um, you know Western capitalist modernity, they found in Russia and its uh, uh, and Russian modern experience a sort of um, Brazilian arms. Um, in um, Russia, this um, modernization process, right, and all this kind of social ills and social problems emerging from it started earlier. And um, Russia produced this, you know, devastating critique of the West and capitalism in its literature and social thought. So modern Japanese found many similarities between their own experience and uh, the ex- uh, in Russian experience. 
and with modernity, and they felt a lot of sympathy with that. So it's um, anti-Western critique, anti-capitalist critique. And um, um, a, a third element is the Russian critique of its own autocracy, of its own monarchy and the uh, bureaucratic government. And um, as I show in my book, by 1917, as they are looking at the Russian modern experience, they kind of um, they are trying to place uh, Russia um, in this, you know, West East nexus. And Russia is occupying this very sort of in between position. It's not completely West, and it's not the East, right? Um, and uh, more and more for the modern Japanese, uh, their own perception, their own sort of cultural. Position in the region is is sort of the same. It's not. It's in between, right? It's it's uh, it's it's the east and the west uh, at the same time, and uh, so this in between position of Russia and Japan, there was something also um, kind of they thought about that as well. Right, and I guess yeah, as you say, this these kind of dual ideas. Yeah, uh, I mean, if if Japan was kind of mirroring, I guess, some quite long standing debates within Russia as well over. Russia's destiny as a, you know, as a, a Western or an Eastern power, that this kind of uh, idea of being, um, what blocks idea of being civians and, and are we in the, uh, the kind of European fold or are we something else? Um, the, 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 those same in-betweennesses, as you say, did play out in what we know a lot about, I guess I would say relatively, of this part of Japanese history, which is military expansion and the building of a, an empire in continental East Asia. Um, so, I mean, how did the army, which I guess was playing an increasingly important role over this period in Japan, digest these two different uh, strands of reaction to Russia? Um, and and what sort of form did yeah this approach to Russia take in the expansion of Japan's empire over this period? Um, yeah, so. Um, let me first talk about the period before 1917. Um, so this, you know, Yamagata Ritomo, the founder of the Japanese army, you know, one of the most powerful statesmen, um, he drafted the, the national defense plan. I think that's how it's called in 1873, where he identified Imperial Russia as the main threat to Imperial Japan. And um, and this is this is you know this is kind of set the tone for uh, the subsequent um, decades. Um, you know, for the army before 1917, after 1917, um, Russia remained a threat. And uh, and I, as I will explain that it's not kind of ideology and geopolitical considerations they overlapped in the army's thinking about Russia. Um. The, uh, the another moment that I stressed in in the book is the decade uh, before 1917. So after the Russian Revolution, oh sorry, after the Russo-Japanese War, which was over, you know, influence um, over Korea, as you know, Russia lost and Japan won. Um, 
uh, Russia and Japan signed a series of treaties or agreements. Um, uh, there were also secret agreements, uh, which basically divided East Asia into two spheres of influences. And uh, sort of outer Mongolia and North Manchuria uh, with its um, Chinese Eastern Railway went under the Russian sphere of influence, and South Manchuria, Korea under the Japanese. So everyone was happy uh, sort of with this arrangement. And, um, well, except, of course, people on those territories. Um, <laughs> right, <sure. laughs> I mean, yes, I mean, Russia and, <laughs> in Russia and in Japan. So, um, and then 1917 happens, and suddenly there is no more Empire of Russia. There is a power vacuum in the region, and um, now the army considers this as the golden opportunity to expand its influence and, you know, to secure the South Manchurian Railway, to, you know, to pacify the Koreans, and so on. There are, like, yeah, many reasons, but they use this opportunity as to expand. I think you asked me before, uh, sorry, I um, the sort of geopolitical and ideological sort of divisions in understanding of, of the Russian Revolution. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the kind of uh, way that, that these different things played out among the uh, yeah among the different power bases, I think you've you've um, explained that pretty well, and, and and the kind of balance between the two um, as it operated within Japan and as it mapped itself onto uh, reactions to Russia. Um, in terms of, uh, I, I guess, the more ideological end of this spectrum. Um, it's easy to assume that in lots of countries in the world, you know, the arrival of a socialist regime and a kind of anti-monarchist, um, you know, new country really um, in the world was a threat automatically to establishments everywhere and that, you know, workers would rise up and that, you know, um, I guess um, groups who had previously been disenfranchised would be able to seize power. Is this, I mean, is this a dynamic we can say was the case in Japan itself? Was the establishment, the kind of imperial authorities of Japan automatically anti-Soviet and anti-communist? And how did the kind of response to this revolution play out among groups within the left? I mean, we'll, we'll get onto this in more detail uh, later, but, but could you sketch out the kind of response from, yeah, from leftist groups too? Okay. Yeah, so um, the Japanese establishment um, was not monolith, right? Um, there were different groups, um, and these different groups had their own traditions of, you know, thinking about foreign policy and domestic policies. Um, and uh, I, um, uh, I sort of I roughly divided these groups into groups who were concerned with geopolitical matters, and another group was, that was concerned with more ideological matters. And so in geop geopolitical sort of group uh, included Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, the Navy, uh, various pan-Asian groups, the major nationalist groups, um, and uh, business circles, uh, especially business circles that um, were related to the fishery and oil. And um, also shipyard buildings, building. Um, so uh, those groups, so they the, the were more concerned sort of with the economic and geopolitical issues. They actually were a sort of, let's say, pro-Soviet. Um, 
it doesn't mean they were a pro-communist. They were a pro-Soviet. They, they advocated the establishment of you know uh, diplomatic relations with the new Soviet regime. And the, on the other hand, there were these ideological um, groups. I mean, the groups who were concerned with the you know co- uh, communist ideology, and uh, uh, they included the uh, Home Ministry, Ministry of Justice, um, various nationalist groups that emerged. Um, uh, during the 1920s, after World War One, obviously the army, um, and um, um, they were uh, sort of, um, you know, they work on, uh, they were concerned with the growing socialist movement in, in Japan, with the labor strikes, with the peasant riots, uh, with this, you know, feminist movement. Student, there are a lot of, you know, people were like very, very politically active after World War One. Um, so um, another moment is uh, that I make a distinction between anti-Soviet and anti-communist, or anti-Sovietism and anti-communism. Um, um, so sometimes um, those uh, terms kind of mixed or confused and used in- interchangeably, but I, I make a, a distinction between them. So if... Um, 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 if, if I, as I discussed with some socialist groups, some of them were uh, against the Soviet Union but accepted communism as an ideology. And there were, yes, and there were uh, other groups like these geopolitical groups, right, who were concerned with foreign affairs, who uh, actually liked the Soviet Union, who wanted to deal with the Soviet Union but rejected the tenets of communism. Right, and I think yeah, sort of teasing out those those nuances is what uh, I guess leads us quite deeply into the world of um, the, some of the internal conflicts and the complications around uh, Japanese society as it as it as it was itself taking shape and changing a lot uh, at this time. Um, so, I mean, if we jump in uh, to the actual kind of. Uh, body of the book itself. We've already touched on quite a lot of the themes of uh, chapter one, uh, which looks at this kind of interesting set of parallels between Russian and Japanese experience, for example, of uh, modernity or industrialization as, uh, I guess, relative latecomers, uh, if such a term can be applied to these processes which were transforming Western European societies. But we can maybe kind of move off, move beyond that um, to looking at some of the more, I guess, uh, kinetic responses, if you like, which you begin discussing in chapter two. Um, and in particular, this intervention, which, uh, as you've already mentioned, made its way all the way up to Buryatia and uh, deep into Russian territory. So um, notwithstanding the kind of conflicts and the duality of Japanese views of what had been happening in Russia uh, all the way to the West, uh, this intervention occurred. So could you say kind of why it was that um, the Japanese authorities decided to make this kind of big push into uh, Russian territory and what happened uh, when it did after 1917? Um, Yeah, so the, yes, October 1917, um, the, the, uh, provisional government uh, collapsed. The monarchy already was um, abolished in March 1917, and country throughout the 1917 country was basically disintegrating. And um, military attaché from Petersburg, Japanese military attaché from Petersburg, Moscow, Harbin, Vladivostok, Irkutsk, they were writing to uh, to Tokyo, um, 
you know, with the reports about what's going on in Russia, horrified absolutely uh, by the disintegration of the Russian army, concerned with the uh, Russia's ability to continue to fight in the uh, World War One, um, they were very concerned with the radicalized workers and especially railroad workers, which you know then hampered the uh, the, the working of the Trans Siberian Railway. Um, and uh, in, in the same reports, they uh, those officers stationed in, in Russia, they suggest the, go- the Japanese government to seriously consider um, um, you know, moving the troops into the Russian Far East and Eastern Siberia. Um, so there are very different reasons, you know, to, because it threatens the stability of the Japanese empire, especially in Korea, uh, because the Japanese cannot continue, um, uh, continue because they need to ensure that Russia stays in the Great War or, you know, that it continues. And um, they were also concerned with this Bolshevik party and Vladimir Lenin. No one knew who who they were. And um, at the kind of 1917, 1918, the um, main understanding was that uh, that was, you know, um, a party sponsored by Germany and working for Germany and for German interests. Um, so, but as I said before, the establishment, the Japanese establishment was not unified. Uh, there were parties uh, who resisted the intervention, um, especially thinking about the British and the American response to the Japanese intervention. And there were uh, um, those who, the radicals, right, and the army who wanted uh, to intervene in the late, um, immediately, in November, December 1917. Anyway, so the more peaceful, so the peace party um, restrained the more radical party, um, and um, um, they were awaiting actually more sort of official uh, announcement of the um, Allied foreign intervention. So that happens in summer 1918. Um, the Japanese move uh, more than six, more than seventy thousand troops to the Russian uh, territory, and another sixty-six thousand troops to northern Manchuria. So if you look at this Northeast Asia, there were 120,000 Japanese troops in 1918 against the 7,000 American troops, like 2,000 French, and, you know, very few of, um, of other powers. So, the you know, it became a big concern for other, for the Allies, especially the United States, but what is interesting, if you look at the um, official announcement of the intervention, the Japanese government never identified the Bolsheviks as the enemy. And they never announced that this intervention was to stop communism um, or to fight the Bolsheviks. So, you know, they, um, it was mainly to uh, protect the, um, you know, the Japanese nationals on the Russian territory and to, you know, to pacify the region amidst the Russian, the, you know, the Russian Civil War. Um, and uh, if you also look at the um, sort of diplomatic communication, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, of Japan, he uh, was very keen not to identify Vladimir Lenin or the Bolsheviks as, you know, as these usurpers or um, 
you know, not, not to antagonize the Soviet government against Japan. So they were very careful with that. Yeah, that's fascinating because I think, you know, it's easy to sort of draw these broad lines and I guess often influenced by the subsequent division between notionally uh, a kind of Cold War division between a capitalist West and a a socialist, uh, well, East, in as much as that makes sense in this context. Um, But actually, as you say, you know, the Japanese response all the way along was, was much more complicated. And so although there were British and French and American interventions um, in, I guess, both uh, Vladivostok and, and also kind of the far north and some other places. They weren't necessarily quite lined up behind the same agendas. Um, as you sort of uh, outline in the book, there was a kind of, uh, I guess, somewhat of a withdrawal of this not particularly well-known, indeed, uh, intervention deep into Siberia um, to a point where um, Japan's kind of uh, occupation of parts of uh, what was still the Russian Far East um, was limited to the very furthest eastern stretches. And I guess I'd be curious because it's a chapter of history that lots of people don't know much about or have heard sort of small hints of, if you would say something about the Far Eastern Republic, which was set up um, in in the kind of intervening years between uh, the revolution and the, the eventual declaration, I guess, of the Soviet Union in 1922. What was this Far Eastern Republic uh, and what, what was it sort of designed to do and how did Japan respond to it? Um, yeah, so the, the Bolshevik governments um, you know, had a lot of setbacks initially in the first two, three years. Um, the sort of the size of Russia was reduced to basically old Moscovy territory, right? Um, and uh, so the, the the country basically disintegrated. Um, this uh, the 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 civil war between the Reds and the Whites is like you know raging, and um, but uh, by 1920 the the so the Russians the I mean, sorry the Bolsheviks are kind of steadily regaining territory after territory, but the the Bolshe- the Japanese still refuse to recognize um, the Soviet government, although the um, sort of the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Soviet government approached uh, the Japanese government in 1919 to establish diplomatic relations. So the Japanese refused that because still in 1920s they still um, um, some of in the government still saw that the the Bolshevik government may not survive longer. Um, another thing is that the Soviet the Soviets are fighting this very brutal war with Poland in 1920. Um, there is a Soviet-Polish war, which was draining a lot of, kind of energy and uh, manpower from the Soviet government. And they, they had no a possibility to fight with the Japanese in the East. So as a, as a, as a sort of a way of destruction, um, the, the Soviets established this um, Far Eastern Republic in 1920, and um, there is more research coming on this uh, uh, on this republic in um, in English recently. But um, um, sort of the republic, the republic government uh, self-proclaimed. Um, um, so the the basis was not uh, it was not a communist republic, but it was sort of more social democratic which was more acceptable for the Japanese government. And the Japanese government agreed to communicate and to establish relations with the, this uh, republic, uh, Far Eastern Republic. 
um, on the premise that it will it is not communist and it will not try to uh, propagate communism on the Japanese territories. Um, yeah, so there was um, a back and forth um, uh, conferences and talks between the representatives of the Republic and, and Japan. Um, and um, as the kind of officially the civil Russian civil war ended in 1922, the federal, the Faisen Republic uh, was, um, um, became part of the, of the of new Soviet Russia, and disappeared. Yeah, got it. Well, and I think that, at least speaking personally, clarifies a lot of things for me because that, as you say, that establishment of the Far Eastern Republic as a sort of buffer in between uh, the kind of, I guess, uh, growing ro- realm of the Bolsheviks and and Japan. It, it it's hard to make sense of. I think if if as you have already outlined very well, um, if you don't understand that Japan itself was quite conflicted or there was a lot going on within Japan's agenda because it looks at least sort of viewed with with hindsight so so transparently like a, a kind of ploy which lasted a couple of years and then was just subsumed into the Soviet Union anyway you know I guess it, at least I've always wondered why Japan put up with that um, but now you know, yeah, you know, I think if you look at this how they talk about the Republic the Japanese actually and I don't understand why, but they really believe that the republic might stay, and that that, that the Soviet government actually would um, uh, would keep it as a buffer state, uh, in you know, <laughs> in the region. Um, and yes, yeah, so that was a bit of a shock for them when that was um, became part of of the Soviet. Yeah. Right, right. Well, and and but it, it, I guess yeah, eventually did, and uh, yeah, Chita lost its capital status and so on. Um, but once it had, um, I guess uh, there was obviously a, a new set of calculations to be made from the Japanese side. Um, and in the next couple of chapters, three and four, you outline uh, and explore in depth, indeed, some of the kind of negotiations with both these broad ideas of. Um, anti-Westernism and, and the kind of potential sympathy that I guess Japan had with the Soviet idea of rejecting Western capitalism, but then the kind of counterbalance of trying to stop communism as an ideology spreading within Japan. So could you kind of give us a picture of how these two things, these two sort of agendas played out uh, once the Soviet Union was sort of up and running um, in the 20s and moving moving through time? Yeah. Um so in those chapter in chapter um, three, I look at uh, Goto Shinpei, um, a very sort of uh, a very famous politician, the first president of the South Manchurian Railway, a very powerful man who, after the uh, failed uh, after 1922, after the, it was obvious that the Siberian intervention failed, began actively promote the recognition of the Soviet Union in Japan and establishment of um, very close relationship between uh, Russia and um, and uh, Japan. And um, on the level of ideas, it's interesting. He um, he's pu- uh, published several articles and newspapers and journals, made several speeches. Um, about communism as an ideology. And he mentioned that communism is a very utopian idea and um, it's 
it's uh, it's not possible to realize those ideas in a state form. Um, he pointed at the development of the Russian Communist Party, at the new economic policy that were implemented in Russia in uh, 1921, um, and um, and uh, he he was telling his um, fellows in the government and the general sort of public that, look, the world revolution didn't happen and will not happen. The uh, communist, Russian communists failed in accomplishing that. They actually cannot build communism um, in their own country. They are looking back, they're turning back to sort of, you know, capitalist relations. Um, and even if they are uh, building, even if they will succeed in building communism in their own country, it doesn't mean that um Japan uh, will become communist, and he, he gives this example like we have sort of fifty relation, fifty years relationship with the United States, and we didn't become a republic, so it will not happen right, that we will not become communist overnight. Um, so it's totally fine to deal with the communist. Then he pointed. Um, so this is this is one argument. Second argument is that he pointed to the um, he and other actually pan Asianists. Um, uh, pointed to the um, developments in Northeast Asia and uh, specifically the establishment of the Soviet Mongolia at the um, at the kind of Soviet return to the Chinese Eastern Rail- Railway, and they were pointed like, look, this uh, this new Soviet um, um, leadership they are actually continuing uh, the same uh, policies as Imperial Russia. So Soviet Russia is actually um, is uh, is an heir to Imperial Russia and um, is concerned with the safety of its borders, with uh, with preservation of you know sphere of influences, and um, as a country, as a kind of a normal state, um, Russia is you know is a is a uh, is a is a good partner, um, and. Um, the third argument Goto Shinpei and other pan Asian is made uh, is paying attention to uh, the uh, Soviet anti Western and anti imperialist critique. And so they flipped it and uh, turned it, you know, kind of agreed with this anti imperialist critique, um, communist anti imperialist critique, arguing that, you know, there is the, the British, the, you know, the Americans, uh, all this imperialists coming to the region, and we need to unite uh, with the Soviet Union in order to sort of expel, right? <laughs> um, in order to uh, um, kind of move uh, to remove those imperialist powers from, you know, from Asia. Um, Goto Shinpei also talked about, you know, he used this term "old continent" versus the new continent. And by a new continent, he means the uh, United States and old continent. And he, um, old continent for him is basically, you know, Eurasia. It included Russia, China, and Japan. And he uh, he went to Russia, to Soviet Union in 1927, 28. He met Stalin several times. And in his conversation with uh, Stalin, he, um, he kind of, he, um, talked about this Eurasian sort of block or Eurasian alliance, which would be invincible, he said, um, and um, uh, and uh, beneficial for everyone. So, yeah. And this was all sort of cloaked in this rhetoric of anti-Western and anti-imperialist uh, movement.
Right, right. And so, as you say, at least some influential voices within the establishment there were saying, you know, oh, don't worry, uh, communism isn't this um, uh, disease. I guess you said that certain circles in Japan were calling it a, a pesto, like a, a plague, right, <laughs> that could could infect Japan. Um, but actually, that leads us well on to um, the, the second part of the book as a whole. So I'll maybe uh, take us on there. Um, there were, nevertheless, strands of leftist ideas uh, within Japan that actually considerably predated 1917. Um, now, they elicited a, a whole host of, of anti-communist responses, which, as you say, are important to differentiate from the idea of anti-Sovietism. But um, could you give us a picture of what these different strands of leftist thought were um, before 1917 uh, in, in Japan? Um, yeah, so... Modern Japan had a, a rich and long-standing uh, socialist tradition. Um, you know, the works of uh, Western socialist thought were translated from the 1870s. Um, there was a, in the first socialist party was created in 1890s, and um, the Japanese socialist movement is actually is rooted in the um, in the people's uh, rights movement. Um, of 1880s, which uh, you know, advocated for the political and economic rights of the general populace. populace. Um, uh, and um, and the, the socialism in Japan was developing very quickly, um, very quickly so that in um, 1907, um, there were uh, several sort of parties and several groups in inside the Japanese uh, socialist movement. And uh, one of those parties became very radical. Uh, uh, they uh, claimed to be anarchists. They were led by the famous um, anarchist socialist Kotoko Shusui. Um, and um, they, um, in 1910, uh, a group of, uh, of Japanese anarchists were arrested. Um, and... Um, uh, and were um, accused of uh, plotting to assassinate major emperor. In 1911, 11 of them were hanged. Um, it's called the High Treason Incident. Um, and after that, um, very public show trial of those anarchies, the Japanese socialist movement sort of went underground. Um, another moment I want to mention is um, this... Um, Japanese socialists and um, anyone interested in social thought before 1917, they they knew about Russia um, and Russian socialist movement, Um, especially the Russian populists or Narodniki. um, They were extremely popular in in, uh, Japan. Um, When Kotoko Shisui went for one year to San Francisco, um, he uh, met a lot of... um, he communicated with uh, Petr, Petr Kropotkin and Russian uh, and other Russian radical emigre in California. Um, after the Russo-Japanese War, uh, Vladimir Lenin actually wrote to ask um, Kotoku to distribute pamphlets, radical pamphlets among uh, Russian prisoners of war, uh, which uh, this Japanese socialist did. Um, so they knew about uh, about this Narodniki, uh, Russian populace. They knew about terrorist acts um, that were, uh, you know, assassinations, 
that very rampant in Imperial Russia in those times. Um, so, you know, when the Bolshevik revolution happened in 1917, it was a surprise, but at the same time, it was not. <laughs> they knew about this very radical tradition in, in Russia. Right, right. And and the kind of, um, I guess, anarchist tradition in particular, which I guess, uh, as you say, has some of these deeper roots. Um, I found particularly interesting your description of them. Um, not least some of these, I guess, doctrinal uh, debates over what the you know correct agenda for socialist parties and communist movements and, and indeed anarchists um, around the world was in the wake of in the wake of 1917. Um, and uh, you highlight, for example. Uh, one really fascinating point I just thought I'd draw attention to this figure, um, Osugi Sakai, who has a sort of dispute with Lenin over the idea of um, the uh, of, of a revolutionary party being led by an intellectual vanguard, um, and Lenin kind of advocating this view that you know there was a, a there should be an intellectual leadership to a socialist movement, whereas um, Osugi says no, you know everyone should be equal and the ideas should come from the workers, and I thought that was a curious. Uh, moment of, 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 of a Japanese party advocating um, greater, uh, I guess, in some ways, equality or lack of hierarchy. Um, all these fascinating moments that pepper your descriptions of these movements and their debates. Um, but in chapter six, um, I, I thought I'd uh, just ask about what's what's in there, because the Japanese Communist Party, um, as a kind of more formal movement, that uh, arose after 1917, I think is particularly interesting and is a party that, as I mentioned in the intro, is still uh, alive or still around. And you see them, especially in, in Hokkaido, actually quite a, quite a lot of them driving around. Um, so I wonder, um, could you say something about this sort of more officially sanctioned version of Japanese leftism that arose uh, following the revolution and how it kind of came together under the auspices of Comintern and so on? Yeah, so in part two, I'm looking at um, at the different strands of uh, Japanese socialism after 1917. So I look at anarchism in chapter five. Chapter six is the early JCP, the Japanese Communist Party. And then next chapter is National Socialist. So I kind of take this 1917 as this, you know, intellectual earthquake after which um, the landscape was different. And within the Japanese uh, Communist Party, I also look at you know, at the sort of growing polarization uh, of different uh, communist groups. And this growing polarization happened uh, because they understood the Russian revolution differently. Um, So I want to kind of emphasize the point that I'm looking only at the Japanese Communist Party in the 1920s. I don't look at the, you know, at the subsequent debates on Japanese capitalism, most famous one, right, in the 1930s. so the Japanese Communist Party was established officially in 1922 as a branch of the Comintern, the Communist International. Um, the Comintern was very interested in Japan initially because they considered Japan to be the most industrialized uh, country in Asia, which was <laughs> true. Um, and so if you have this very uh, uh, a strong industry, then you will have the most progressive proletariat. And, and they targeted this uh, Japanese proletariat. They were very interested in anarchists, by the way. Um, and um, uh, but at the same time, they knew very little about about Japan, its history, and its culture. Um, another interesting point is the Comintern, as the as the Russian ter- Russia, 
sort of sorry, uh, the Bolshevik um, gained control over the Russian Far East and Eastern Siberia. They established Comintern um, offices, you know, in Vladivostok, um, in uh, Irkutsk, and then later in Shanghai. So they are sending um, sort of the agents to Japan, and those agents, interestingly, they were not obviously Russians; they were uh, Chinese or Korean communists. Um, and so they invite these Japanese socialists. They approach the famous figures as Yamakawa Hitoshi and Sakai Toshihiko and Osugi um, Sakai um, to kind of establish contacts and to travel to Russia to meet Russian Bolsheviks. Um, Interestingly, it was anarchists who traveled first to Russia, to Soviet Russia, to attend all these different um, um, commentary conferences. Um, Yamakawa refused to go because he didn't know who they were, and that was really dangerous to cross, you know, um, to go to Shanghai and then to um, to Russia, whereas the civil war still was going on. But um, so anyway, the, the JCP was established. Um, Yamakawa Hitoshi wrote the manifesto and the program in English, and it was sent to Moscow, and it's still in the Comintern archives in Moscow. It's published, and I use these published Comintern archives for my uh, for this book. Um, it's fascinating. You're looking at this. It's not only official documents, but also letters that were sent between the Russians and the Japanese. You know, receipts. Um, uh, uh, you know. Apologies, <laughs> explanations, um, and the you know the commenter funded the JCP. They send a lot of money. Um, another, it's it's like history is fascinating. This early period, um, people who carried those funds, um, you know, it was money or sometimes diamonds even and gold. Um, some of those. Eight, uh, Japanese envoys, right, who were supposed to bring these funds to Japan, they basically disappeared along the way. <laughs> um, yeah, so there were a couple of instances when a huge sum of money um, and diamonds uh, were supposed to arrive to Tokyo, but they didn't because the person, the people just disappeared. And uh, and uh, the, uh, the functioning of their organization was sort of paralyzed for a year because they didn't have basically Money. And they, have, they would write like, apologies to Moscow, like, you know, we are very sorry. <laughs> but in the early period, these very random people traveled between, you know, these places. Uh, a lot of adventurers, a lot of opportunists. And these commentary monies were sort of like, easy money. But I digress. Um, so um, the JCP, um, so, th- th- you know, there is this, a communist, the sympathizers, no one knows exactly what is, uh, what is communism, what, I mean, Soviet communism, right? Not the Marxist, but Soviet communism, um, in its Leninist form. Um, and sort of, they, they grapple and sort of struggle with, um, these two big questions. They knew very well Marx, uh, Karl Marx, right? Um, uh, conclusion that the, Socialist, the next sort of socialist revolution would not happen in backward Russia. Um, so they, they are thinking why actually the first socialist revolution in history happened in backward Russia against Marx's predictions. Um, um, you know, what is then, how did they manage to skip sort of advanced capitalism right? and um, how is they going to build that? And another question is, um, if if the Russians succeeded, does it mean that the uh, model, the Russian model, is universal and applicable everywhere? 
Um, then, um, actually, as Japan is sort of far away, the the um, the, bo- the the borders really well guarded. The commenter turned uh, their attention to China uh, very quickly, and um, all the you know programs, all the efforts were um, uh, directed to China and um, uh, building a Chinese communist movement uh, and party and so on. So they designed this uh, program for revolutions in East Asia with China in mind. And uh, whatever directives the Russians sent to uh, Japan were, um, you know, prioritized China, which really sort of (laughs) puzzled, uh, to say the least, uh, the Japanese movement, socialist movement, because this is sort of the the main argument of this whole um, uh, chapter and, and the book is that the Japanese communists and socialists um, um, appropriated this unilinear um, understanding of historical development. Right? And um, if you place sort of Japan and China on this, sort of, you know, on, on, on this scale, um, China or Japan was most progressive, right? It's most more progressive than China, and it meant that the Japanese uh, communist movement, the Japanese proletariat, was more advanced than Chinese or Korean um, you know, proletariat. Uh, they were more class conscious, they were more organized, and so on. And so, for the Japanese communists, it was a very uh, um, um, curious: why should the goals and tactics and priorities of Japanese communist movement uh, prioritized China rather than their own domestic uh, struggle. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I mean, yeah, yeah fermenting world revolution was a, a pretty a pretty complicated business from the Comintern's point of view, and sounds like they weren't necessarily quite uh, adapted to the task, even um, as there were also setbacks from the Japanese side, including, as you say, people running away with sacks of money and stuff. Um, I mean, in addition to, to the, the JCP and the anarchists, as I've mentioned, you also um, give us a picture of this national social, socialist movement, um, which, you know, I think uh, is something that is is not very uh, well known and, and um, has a, an interesting relationship to, I guess, German and Italian counterparts arising at a similar time. But I'll leave uh, listeners to delve into some of that themselves since we're uh, running up a bit against the time. Um, but just sort of lastly on the leftist movements, um, there were these kind of several different strands as you uh, outline in such rich detail in the book. Um, how much kind of effort was there to make common cause and to find commonality between them and obviously as we know from japan's subsequent history <laughs> you know there wasn't a socialist revolution in japan so these play these people didn't succeed um so why was that why why was there sort of ultimately do you think no kind of concerted and successful attempt to get a strong left movement off the ground um yeah it's uh, it's fascinating to see how this previous you know, old friends. They were all. It's it's not. It's not. Was not a big group uh, socialists, and uh, they were all, you know, great friends. And then, how during the 1920s they grow apart from each other, they become anarchists, national socialists, and, uh, and communists. Um, and the basis for that is like, yeah. So, what is the Russian Revolution for this conflict between those old friends, and what should we do in Japan? Very ideological uh, conflicts. 
Um, and uh, by the late 1920s, they don't speak to each other. Uh, they don't speak to each other. They, um, um, you know, bashing each other in uh, their own newspapers and periodicals, uh, calling themselves traitors, um, and so on. So um, it's a very, um, it's a intransigent um, uh, situation by the late 1920s. Um, mm. And I think the main, um, the reason for that is that each of those groups um, um, had their own idea about, you know, what was Japan, modern Japan, and what Japan's future should look li- should look like. And, and each of them thought that their program or their understanding was better than and more correct one than the other. Mm. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's some, somewhat ironic that a socialist revolution then, that the first successful socialist revolution would actually have led to the uh, kind of collapse of, uh, uh, or at least, uh, I mean, a, a major setback in these, these leftist movements. Um, but as you say, this is, in a sense, what sheds such interesting light on the status of Japan at the time. And uh, ultimately, I think, you know, we, we therefore get this really amazing picture of the Russian Revolution as a kind of uh, a mirror in which uh, many different Japanese groups looked and saw different images of, of as you say, where Japan was going and what it was going to be. Um, but there's a huge amount more, uh, Tatiana, in the book that uh, we haven't had time to touch on today, but which, as I say, I would uh, really encourage listeners to delve into when they get hold of the book themselves. Um, but uh, we've taken up quite a bit of your time talking about this. Um, and before we let you go, I'll just ask, uh, what projects have you kind of had on the go since this book uh, was finished and came out? Yeah, thank you. Um, so my next project is about the, um, uh, the Mongols, actually, <laughs> the Mongols and the Japanese and the Soviets. So I look at the, as I mentioned before, I'm um, from Buryatia, which is, uh, you know, Mongols, basically, in, inside Russia. So when I was doing the Siberian intervention part, um, I kind of stumbled upon several uh, Buryats uh, in 1919 who were trying to gain independence from Russia and who were trying to you know, build a great Mongolian state, uh, basically a Mongolian nation state. But and they, sought for, uh, they sought help from the Japanese. Well, it didn't realize, um, this project didn't realize, but I uh, was curious about this sort of small people on the borders, let's say, these people who are borderland people and how they manage uh, their lives um, between, uh, you know, between these big empires, the Soviet Empire and the Japanese Empire and the Chinese Empire as well. So um, my, uh, for now, I'm looking at these Buryat um, communities um, and in three different localities. So ones who stayed inside Russia, Soviet Russia became communist and built a republic there. Uh, the other community, Buryat, who immigrated to Mongolia, Soviet Mongolia, and the third group, Buryats, who escaped after the revolution to Manchuria and became part of the Japanese puppet state Manchukuo. And so looking at these uh, different communities, I want to look at the Soviet and Japanese modernizing policies, um, how they manage these Mongol communities on the borders. And so it's sort of comparative um, uh, history of empires. Fantastic. Well, that sounds, yeah, really excellent and a, and a really suitable continuation, I think, of some of the brilliant insights uh, that this book has offered us. Um, but Tatiana, at Thank you so much for appearing on the show today. Uh, it was really wonderful talking to you. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, it was fun. <laughs>
And uh, listeners, thank you too. I hope you also have had some fun listening to this. Uh, This was New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye.